1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books and Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Herman Capellan and Josh Dever, authors of Making AI Intelligible, Philosophical Foundations, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Language, Herman and Josh.
2: Thank
0: you. Hello. Uh, well, let's dive in. Your book focuses on AI or artificial intelligence and how philosophy of language is relevant to understanding and maybe even improving it. So let's start with your book's argument at a high level. What's your book's thesis, first of all, and why did you think it was an important book to write? So I think rather than give you a thesis,
1: I'd rather give you a puzzle, because I think the thing that motivates our book centrally is a puzzle that we want to address. We've got some suggestions for what to say in response to that puzzle, but a lot of what we want to do is just draw attention to that puzzle and get people talking about it some more. So here's a way of thinking about the puzzle. Increasingly, we're surrounded by various kinds of artificial intelligence computer systems. And these computer systems are meant to answer certain kinds of questions for us, make certain kinds of decision, give us certain kinds of information. And they're doing this by producing some output. They'll dump some text onto a screen. They'll produce a voice through some kind of, uh, you know, voice software. And so they're, they're producing things that we'd like to take, us, take as telling us something. But we need to make sure we know what these systems are telling us. And one of the things we want to emphasize is it shouldn't be viewed as straightforward what the system is telling you. So here's a kind of motivating example. Suppose you've got an artificial intelligence system whose job is to look at medical records and try to make a diagnosis of a patient. So you might, for example, give it uh, digital images of a certain kind of, of lesion and the artificial intelligence was to look at the digital image do some kind of processing on it and render a verdict. And what we'd like is for the verdict to be that this lesion is a malignant tumor or a benign tumor. So, you know, we take a photo of a lesion on your body and we give it to this computer and it returns a response saying, yep. you know, outputting the word benign. Now, that looks very reassuring. But of course, it's only genuinely reassuring if when the computer outputs the word benign, what it means is that it's a benign tumor. Right? But it's not a straightforward matter that that's what the computer means. So think about how these artificial intelligence systems are typically developed. The way that something like this is done, to put it very simplistically, is you train the artificial intelligence system by giving it many, many photos of uh, lesions whose status is known. So you give it a, a photo of a lesion, it outputs a verdict on whether it's benign or malignant, and then you correct it. You tell it whether it got it right or not. And you do that over and over and over again until you think that it's reached a level of expertise where it can make these decisions properly. But suppose it turns out that there was something going on in the background of the data set that you originally gave it, so that the collection of malignant tumor photos that you gave it all had some distinguishing characteristic to them. There was, for example, some kind of medical instrument in the background of the photo, Mm -hmm. or there was something slightly different about the, the color scheme of the photo, then there's the danger that what the AI system has done is not trained itself to recognize a malignant or a benign tumor, but rather recognize a photo that has a medical instrument in the background or doesn't have a medical instrument in the background. And so now, when we go out in the wild and we give it this new photo of your lesion, and it reports the word benign, There's this danger that all it's really telling us is there was no medical instrument in the background of the photo of the lesion that we gave it. And of course, that's not a reassuring thing to know. You didn't want to know what stuff was in the background of the photo of the part of your body. You wanted to know whether you're healthy or not. So to know what to make of this AI system's output, you really need need to know what it means. And that's now a question in the philosophy of language. We need to think about what makes its outputs mean things. And that's the question we want to try to address.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So let's back up a little bit. One of the things we do on this podcast is find out a little bit about the authors themselves. So you're both philosophers of language, but how did you come to be interested in this particular puzzle and in the intersection of artificial intelligence and philosophy of language?
2: Well, ju- just to pick up uh, and answer that by continuing some of what Josh just Said. So I think that the higher level of interest, the more abstract direction from which we come, is the idea that now and as we go forward, we'll be spending more and more of our time communicating with or via various forms of AI. And as we're doing that, it becomes really important to make sure that our meanings, our concepts, or communicative abilities are somehow aligned so that when I say something to an AI, there's a sense in which it understands it and can convey it further. And when there's an output that I can understand it and that there's a notion of getting it right. Now, all these mechanisms of trying to understand what understanding is, how meaning is conveyed from one agent to another, how interpretation works, that's what we've been working on as philosophers of language throughout Our entire careers, actually Josh and I have written, I don't know, what is it, four books together before this? And -hmm. they were all about those issues, about what is it for an agent and think agent more generally now as including an artificial agent to be able to produce an output that is meaningful and what does it mean for that to be meaningful? And then what is it for someone else to understand it and interpret it? And what is it for that exchange to be a successful instance of communication? So those are issues that people in philosophy have worked on basically for the last 100 years or more since Frege. And it would be incredibly surprising, we thought, if it turns out that everything that philosophers have had to say about this for the last 100 years turned out to be irrelevant in this new setting where we have new kinds of communicative agents and new forms of of engaging with Creatures that are quite different from us, but in some ways uh, similar because they're also neural nets. And so mm-hmm. we wanted to use some of those, those frameworks and models and theories and results that have come up over the last 100 years to help understand the human AI interaction. And then maybe by using those models, we can also, But but this would be sort of a long-term goal, think of ways to to improve those interactions. So there are points that people worry a great deal about. One of those is we get the the kind of outputs from an AI that Josh described, say, in a medical case, But people want to know why they want reasons for these judgments or claims made. They can have incredible and very, very, significant impact on our lives and so we want to know we want reasons so if someone if a doctor tells you you need a certain kind of treatment first thing you would do is well what's wrong with me what's the reason for that and then Mm -hmm. if you've got a good doctor the doctor will give you an explanation and give the reasons the evidence now as things are right now we don't get that but that whole process the process of getting reasons and explanations which is sort of very important part of that communicative exchange, is something that presupposes that there is content, that the kind of thing that it that it actually says something and that what it said, the AI said, is something that reasons can be given for. And so so there's there are kind of pressing reasons for for thinking very carefully about what constitutes the content of AIs, how it aligns with our content. And our hope was by thinking through that, using the kind of results that philosophers have come up with, uh, we could also have some practical effects down the line. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the terms you've both been using here is neural network. And I just want to make sure we're clear about what this is is referring to. So in your book, you're you're not concerned with things like calculators, even though those have outputs that are numerical. And... You might want to talk about as oh the calculator said the answer to two plus two is four, but you are concerned with things like GPT three and other sorts of um, artificial intelligences. So, what is a neural network? What's the criteria for the being the kind of AI that you're concerned with in this book?
1: Good. So I think the the characteristic feature of neural nets and the kind of artificial intelligence systems we're thinking of is that there's a sort of computational and algorithmic obscurity to how decisions are being reached. So the the contrast on the other side is something like a program that's designed to say tell you whether a number is prime and you can look at the details of the program and see exactly how the program is figuring out whether the number is prime. It's going through a certain collection of of computations. It's taking a number, trying to divide it by all the numbers smaller than it. And you can look at that and think, I understand exactly how that algorithmic procedure is yielding an answer specifically to the question, is this number prime? In these kinds of neural network systems, on the other hand, uh, when you look at the final computational process, it is, for humans, obscure why it's answering the question that we're taking it to answer, right? So, uh, you design these systems by setting up just a kind of system of nodes, and then you feed it some kind of input, say, you you know, you want to build an image recognition software. So you're just trying to get something which will distinguish between photographs of birds and photographs of things other than birds. And so you give it a digitized photograph of a bird, and it takes all that digital information and just starts doing some kind of calculation on it. And at the initial stage, it doesn't really matter exactly what the calculation that's done is. Uh, It just weights various parts of the numerical data in the imagery in different ways, and drops out a verdict, you know, bird or not a bird. And then you give it some feedback. You tell it whether it got that one right. And then based on whether it got it right or not, it goes back and it re-weights various parts of its computational algorithm. So one node in the network gets weighted more heavily and another node gets weighted less heavily. It redoes the calculation. You give it a new verdict and so on. And eventually it starts to converge on decisions that you like, but even once it's converging on decisions that you like, if you look at the internal processing, all you're going to see is vast numbers of uh, bits of data being run through a bunch of kind of linear algebra and a number dropping out at the end. And if you look at that and ask, well, how is it figuring out that this is a bird? Is that a part of the program? where I can say, ah, this is where it's kind of checking to see how many feathers there are on the object or whether it has a beak, you're not going to find anything like that. It's a kind of overall holistic computational process that doesn't break down into components, at least on the computational level, that we're able to understand. And I think this is what creates the particularly pressing interpretive demand, right? Given that you can't look at the computation and see transparently, why it's the kind of computation that would figure out whether something is a bird photograph, we have to worry about whether the output of the program really does mean that it's a bird photograph, rather than meaning some other obscure computational feature about the way the the bits of the photograph are aligned with one another.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like, so. as I was was reading your book and, and preparing for this interview, I started to notice how often people talk about these kinds of AIs in terms like you've just described—that it it means things, that it says things, and so on. So, there was a, a headline in in Vox in September that was talking about GPT three, characterizes it as a as a smart and poetic AI, but also that it says terrible things about Muslims. Um, but, but here's the weird thing. This article doesn't talk to any philosophers of language about the issue. Instead, they talk about, well, let's get some better data sets in order to train these neural nets. So, you know, here's, here's another maybe obvious question that I know you've talked about a little bit, but I just want to hear more on. Why should people in, for instance, the AI community read this book if they're the ones that you're concerned about uh, reading it? Why should they care what two philosophers of language have to say about these issues? Isn't the question really about data sets and and algorithms?
2: Yeah, this is a theme we're trying to push throughout the book. Uh, And and I think it's definitely one of the larger goals of the book is to try to uh, show that what philosophers have done is of great relevance and importance, both theoretically and practically. And so the maybe easy way to think about this is that the people who make GPT-3 and who work for the big companies that make the technology that we're talking about now, they're trained in making computers and programming them and things like that. They have no training or very little training or understanding of what communication is, what a language is, what the different semantic pragmatic mechanisms are that generate successful communication. And those are issues that are all, at least the foundation of all of that, is in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it's strange that we're having these transformative technologies being driven by people who lack training. When, when you hear them talk about it, they talk about issues in philosophy, but they are, in effect, amateurs. They don't. I mean, they might have picked up a little here and there, or they're making it up on their own, but they're amateurs for thinking about the nature of communication, the nature of representation. Uh, Those are the things that we philosophers are quite good at. But we're coming very late to the game. We don't have the kind of funding they have. They're making the Mm -hmm. successful technology. So it's very hard uh, and probably very unlikely that we'll ever get a real voice in in sort of directing or, or having much impact. But at least I think if you're interested in these larger theoretical questions, it's going to be unavoidable to have philosophers involved in it. But I think part of the reason it's not happening is kind of institutional, structural, in some sense, that philosophers are doing their or little puzzles that we've been worried about for the last 100 years. And we published papers on those, and it's kind of a recognizable way to have a career. Now, if you're going to start writing on the sort of thing that Josh and I wrote this book about, where you connect it to a form of technology, there's a tendency i think to think that well you how can we do that if we don't know how to make the machines if we don't know how to program if we don't know all the technical stuff and we're hoping that reading this book you can get a sense that there's quite a bit of results that you can come up with and contributions you can make even if you're not someone who's going to program these systems i mean just there's something we haven't talked about yet and i, I and it's sort of relevant here i think mm-hmm. and it's the And it springs out of what you were saying. We talk about GPT-3 and the sort of systems that Josh was talking about as having told us things, making suggestions, making decisions, responding to inputs. So we're doing all of this in this content-type discourse with, with respect to it. But there is an alternative that is very powerful when you start thinking about it, which is, no, they never say anything. They can't represent the world. They don't have any content, they don't share our language, they can't speak English, they can't understand English, they've never told us anything, they never made any suggestions, they never made any decisions. Basically, what they are is a little source of evidence for contents that we then can produce, but the only real content comes from us. Humans responding to these neural nets, quay evidence in favor of some hypothesis or another, just like... The smoke isn't in itself saying that there was fire, but we can say that having looked at it. So we're throughout trying to contrast this contentful view of AI, which, as as you were pointing out, is the way we're talking about, the way we react to it. And in the long run, it's very hard to see that we should give all that up. But it is a real option. Now, choosing between these two options, thinking of the AIs as having content versus just being these... Contentless things that we can use as evidence. That again brings up these cl- completely philosophical issues about how you adjudicate between those two views. And then going back to the issue why philosophy is relevant, it's really hard to see that people whose training is in how to make full programs should be able to get that right. I mean, they they will make conjectures and so on about it, but it's not their area. Of expertise, so it really is a wonderful area for philosophers to try to start engaging with more extensively. I want to add one more thing about this. Mm -hmm. Sure. And and one of the also also really big issues I talked earlier about explainable AI as a really pressing topic. Mm -hmm. There's another issue people now worry a great deal about, and it's value alignment between AI. And humans. So we want these systems get more and more powerful, and maybe eventually much smarter than us, people worry that they can turn against us, and that they can be used for for bad purposes. And then, and then the the way this issue is described at a high level of abstraction is, well, we need we need to make sure that the content, the, the norms that they have, the AIs have, align with ours. And so this is this is a really big issue. Now. Soon as you start thinking about that, this issue of content that again comes up because it assumes that there are norms and values and things that correspond to our norms and values that can be put, you know, and scare quotes here, in the AI. Mm-hmm. Now the question of whether that can be done depends on well, what are the contents of normative claims. How do you put that in an AI or in a neural net? How do you find that? And so again. This is where, and that's you know, one issue in philosophy of language, and it's also the intersection of philosophy of language and moral philosophy. So it's an area where philosophers can contribute. I think it's still incredibly early days for figuring out how we can do that. Mm-hmm. And it's early days for figuring out whether anyone will listen to what we have to say, because people just making the systems have so many more resources and so on than us and their goals are not really reflecting on these things. It's more trying to make more powerful systems. But our hope is that at least at some point these philosophical dimensions will be integrated more closely into the development of those systems.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so the first first part of the book, the first chapter, you you set out the puzzle as you have already. And we'll we'll talk about the particular case as we move on. But in the second chapter, you address some of the worries that we've we've just discussed. Uh, You have the sort of Alfred, the skeptic character and and answer some of the questions that I've just put to you. One other question that I just want to want to raise that you talk about in that chapter is um, it seems like one answer might just be, well, yeah, sure. We talk about GPT-3 saying things, but we don't mean says literally it's, it's just some sort of figurative or loose talk, uh, why don't you think that's a satisfactory answer?
1: Good. So I think the reasons for wanting something more than loose talk are, are implicit in some of the examples we've been talking about, but look, consider another example. Suppose at some point, uh, these sorts of artificial intelligence systems start to play a role, say, in our legal and judicial system. There are already instances somewhat along these lines. So as you get to the point where the way trials are held is you feed in a body of evidence to an artificial intelligence system, and then it outputs a a verdict, and it outputs innocent or guilty. And On the basis of that output, we're now supposed to take important real-world actions, right? We're going to put someone in prison or not put them in prison. And I think if that's going to make sense as a practice, as the way that we're going to run our lives and our society, we need these artificial intelligence systems to actually be telling us things and not for it to just be loose talk, right? So if we're going to tell someone because this bit of machinery output the word guilty, we're going to put you in prison for 10 years, right? If they ask, you know, how that makes sense, why that bit of text on the screen means they have to go to prison. And we say, well, the computer didn't really say that you were guilty. That's just kind of loose talk. We're, we're just interpreting the, um, the text on the screen as, you know, we'll take that as meaning that you're guilty. That doesn't seem reassuring, right? Because now we want to know, but what licenses you in taking it in that way? If the trust that we're supposed to place in these systems is dependent on their accuracy, the very notion of accuracy presupposes the notion of content, right? You can't be accurate unless... You're saying something that that can be true or false so that you can be reliably true. So if we're not willing to actually commit to these systems saying things and telling us things, then it's very hard to see how it's going to make sense to let them play the kinds of roles in our lives that increasingly we're headed in the direction of having them play.
0: Yeah. And so what you've just described, I think, connects to the third chapter of your book where you discuss aboutness and representation. So there needs to be something that the AI is, in some sense, talking about. It has to be representing something. And I'm, I'm being super loose here, as you yourselves note that you're going to just use sort of aboutness and representation at a high level uh, interchangeably. So I want to ask you about that third chapter, in particular about meta semantics, because I think for our listeners, that might be uh, an, an interesting uh topic for you to discuss that seems to be really crucial for what you're doing in this book and it may not be familiar to everyone but also correct me about my characterization of aboutness and rep- representation Fill and what what we need to know in order to appreciate what comes next in the book
2: so we're trying to use a very intuitive non-theoretical notion of aboutness which is if the system says malcolm doesn't have cancer then the system has said something about you and it has it's not just anything it has said, it has talked about your situation with respect to cancer, namely you don't have it. Mm-hmm. And so what it has done is represented one way that the world is, namely it's a world in which the guy, you fail to have a certain kind of illness. It's
1: like a good world.
2: And it, it's a good world. That's And that's, so that's what you want. But, That assumes that the system can represent, they can represent you, cancer, put the two things together and say that you don't have it. I think that idea is very, very intuitive. There are many different philosophical theories about how that's possible, how a system can do that. So I'm sitting on a chair right now and this chair isn't about anything. No, it's not. It's just there. It's not about me or you or anything. It doesn't have that capacity for representing the world. And this paperclip that I'm now just picking up, it also doesn't. It couldn't represent you. There, so, so there are these systems in the world that can do this, representing the world. And we're, I'm assuming now that when I speak, I can do that. I can talk about Malcolm. I can talk about, our podcast. I can talk about Josh. So this is an amazing thing that that my mind and my language can do. It can, even though you we're spread all over the world right now, language can uh, connect in some way to to you and the listeners will be able to know that I said something about the two of you, so on. Mm -hmm. And then there are things in the world that fails doesn't have that property, like the paperclip and the and the chair. Now, metasemantics and the way we're using it, is a theory about what it is that makes it possible for a system to do representing. What are the conditions that must be in place for representation to happen? So you can think of that as metaphysics of representation. What are the facts in the world that grounds this capacity for representation that is so important to humans and that distinguishes us from paper clips and chairs, and so on. And so there are many theories about that in philosophy, competing theories. And they all seem. And you know, one of the issues about philosophy that frustrates non-philosophers is this: they, we don't have a like a consensus. It's not like we can say, oh, you know, we spent hundred years thinking about this, and we've figured it all out. Here's the correct theory. Philosophy doesn't work like that because what we're doing is so hard. But we have some pretty good candidates. One of the things that we're trying to do in the book is show how some of those candidates that we think are quite plausible can be applied to AI systems. So one option is, that I was talking about earlier, is, look, they just can't do it because they're just not the sort of object that can represent you should be very suspicious of that, because remember how Josh was talking about the nature of neural nets, and one of the things that's worth mentioning there is that you know, your, your brain is also of a neural net. So it would be you know, they're kind of similar, the natural and the and the AIs we're talking about, the neural net based AI. And so what we're trying to see is how well can we find patterns that are sufficiently similar to the human case in the AI case that can ground representation. So we're trying to say, don't give up the thought that they can represent the world, that they can say something, and we can show you how that could be made possible by looking at some of these theoretical frameworks, and we present three of those. So that's a high-level description of of the meta-semantics idea, and, and the kind of sort of simple talk about representation that that we rely on throughout.
0: Great. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So that chapter is, it's relatively short. You're just giving us the sort of nuts and bolts in order to to let us move on. The real, uh, as I take it, the real stuff starts happening in chapter four, where you present your theory. And here you present what you call a de-anthropocentrized externalism. So let's un- unpack this. Obviously, de anthropocentrized. We got to do something with the fact that it's not humans we're talking about here. So, so that's an issue. But, but what is externalism? What is externalism in the context of philosophy of language? And why do you think this approach is better than other approaches? Obviously, philosophy of language has lots of different options in the past hundred so years in in English philosophy, other philosophies, maybe longer. Why externalism? Good. So I think, you know, if
1: there's a central positive lesson, I'd like to try to have absorbed from this book, it's that the externalist tradition is a natural and important place to look for making some progress in thinking about how artificial intelligence systems could be successfully representing stuff about the world. So Look, when the question first gets posed, you know, we've got this artificial intelligence system, we're hoping it's a kind of bird image detector, and we're wondering whether it's been successfully created as a bird image detector. I think it's a very natural thought that The way to answer that question is to now dive into the details of the program, like go down into the source code and start looking at how all the computational algorithms are designed and try to work out from that whether this thing is doing bird representations in the end. And I think especially if you're a programmer this is automatically going to be where you start because this is your area of expertise, right? This is what you do is go and work with the details of code. And so when you want to try to answer this semantic question about what your program is doing, you want to do what you always do. You want to go inside the thing and look at how it's working on the inside. And what we want to suggest is that there's an important thought that plays a lot of role in philosophy of language suggesting that This isn't always the right approach for figuring out why things represent the way they do. And thinking about the human case is a helpful way to think about this. So when an ordinary person says, for example, that uh, Brutus killed Caesar, and we want to understand them as saying something about these two historical figures, right? They've said something that's about Brutus and about Caesar, these people, you know, 2,000 years ago in a different part of the world. I want to know what is it that makes what they've done about those historical figures? Here the suggestion is, look, going and looking inside the head of the speaker may not be the best way to answer that question. And when I say look inside the head of the speaker, we could this mean this neurologically. So, you know, one thing you might be tempted to do is go look at the brain structure, look at how the neurons are wired together and try to extract from that some kind of uh, reason for thinking that this person is thinking about and saying things about Brutus and Caesar. Or you might think about this non-neurologically, but just mentally. You might sort of think about the sorts of mental imagery that they're having or the features that they're considering when they attempt to talk about these people. The thought is all of these things might not provide the right tools for linking up their words and their thoughts with these historical figures. That instead, what you might need to do is think about how these people are situated in their environment. So the reason that this person's utterance, Brutus killed Caesar, is about the two historical Romans could be more to do with the fact that this person has inherited the words Brutus and Caesar from someone else, who in turn inherited the words from someone earlier than that, and back and back and back until you arrive at an early point in Roman history where someone is pointing to these two historical figures and saying, let's name that child Brutus and let's name that child Julius Caesar. And the thing that makes uh, the words of someone speaking now 2,000 years later about these people is the fact that there is this chain of usages leading from them across the world back through time back to the original people. And if you think those are the facts that make your language or your thoughts about the people that they're about, it's just going to be a mistake to try to probe questions of aboutness by looking at internal computational features. And so if that's how it is with us, maybe that's how it is with these programs as well. And the thing that philosophers have to contribute here can be just suggesting A fundamental reorientation on the question, thinking you shouldn't be looking, or at least looking exclusively at how the program works. You need to be thinking about how this program is situated and in its broader causal and cultural environment to be able to figure out what's meant by the program. Mm
0: -hmm. And just to be clear here, you're not saying that we shouldn't be looking at all about what's happening internally. Uh, it seems like something at the biological, the mental level is important, right? But um, for externalists, that's that's not the only story. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So we want to think of externalism as a kind of opening up thesis. It's a thesis that the stuff that matter can be stuff outside the head as well as stuff inside the head.
0: Gotcha. Good. So We have this introduction of de anthropocentrized externalism. So for human beings, we're thinking about causal connections to people like like Brutus way back in history. Um, What's going on for for AI? What is the externalism happening
2: there? So we're thinking that it's not just philosophers coming with our theories from the last 40, 50 years to AI and then just straight applying it and seeing if they fit properly. We're thinking that when philosophers were developing these theories, the kind of externalist theory that just described, they were thinking just about humans most of the time, just, you know, like little specific features about how we engage with each other, quite the kind of animals that we are. And a lot of the theories picked up on very distinctive features of, of just or kind of mammal but we're suggesting uh that's a kind of anthropomorphizing move the sort of th- the sort of thing that externalism really should be should be more general it should be something that applies you know, just putting aside computers for a moment but even you know just think like meeting aliens that creatures are very different from ourselves that may be able to speak their internal structures and so on their brains if they have them could be really different from ours, so we want, and their way of life might be very different. So we want something that is a form of externalism that's not tied too much to the details of our way of life and our uh, type of creature. And so the, the de-anthropomorphizing thing we're talking about is to say, let's take these theories from the history of philosophy, recognize that they were too anthropomorphic, they were too much focused on specific features of of human life, abstract away from that and try to find a form of externalism that can incorporate both humans and computers while preserving the essence of, of externalism. And as Josh was just saying, you know, one of the things that the, that you are not doing right now and that your listeners are not doing is they're not looking inside our brains or, or neural nets to understand what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- in fact, I don't think any human has ever figured out what another human said or meant by looking inside their brain. So the practice of interpreting comes from something outside of that, outside the brain, out- and then, you know, applied to AI, outside the program. And the externalist traditions that were playing around with in this book have different views just about what that external element is. And so for each of the theories we consider, we consider things from Saul Kripke, from Putnam, uh, Tyler Burge, Gareth Evans, Millikan. And these are all different types of of externalist theories. We try to abstract away from the peculiarities of the human and create externalist models. that are de anthropomorphized and by that we mean something that can apply to to AIs as well. So Mm -hmm. in doing that, we we think we can understand better the way in which AIs can represent the world, but we've also done something that's really cool from the point of view of philosophers. We've made the externalist tradition better. (laughs) We've discovered that it was just too anthropomorphic, too much stuck in little features, of our, our kind of mammal. And then uh, I think we get better philosophy, better philosophy of language, better philosophy of communication by doing this application. So it isn't just like a top down thing where we philosophers come and we have all the answers and then we figure out how it works with AI. No, it's not like that. It's we come, they create problems for us. We got to revise our theories. And then the revised theories will be better theories. And they'll hopefully, if they work out, be theories. That tell us quite a bit about artificial intelligence and the human AI interaction.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's let's dive into the theories then. So basically the structure of the book, you start to focus on this case that you introduce at the beginning of the book, which is where the statement we're looking at is Lucy is high risk. This is coming out of an AI called smart credit, which has sadly turned her down for, for a mortgage. Um, so you have chapters where, first of all, you focus on how the AI can refer to a property that is being high risk. Then another chapter about how the AI can refer to Lucy. And then of course, in chapter seven, we have to talk about how it can put these together through through predication. Something interesting that you just sort of alluded to there is that you're not just drawing on a particular externalist. You draw on Saul Kripke, Gareth Evans, you draw on uh, teleosemanticists, uh, Karen Neander, David Papineau. Uh, so you kind of answered this again. It's it's great. You're anticipi- anticipating my questions a bit, but um, why why not just stick with one particular externalist approach? I mean, Evans and Kripke disagree about reference. You know, why why not just pick one and apply it um, sort of systematically
1: here? I guess the way I would want to answer this is to say that. We view things as just being at a very preliminary stage here. We think we're at the very beginning of an extremely hard process of trying to figure out how meaningful systems, which are really quite different from us in some important ways and quite similar to us in some important ways, can successfully mean things. And we think we've got these externalist tools that the philosophical tradition has developed for us, and there are a variety of these tools, and they have interesting differences from one another. But we think all of these tools have been, you know, as Herman was just stressing, trained on the case of human meaning and human communication. And, you know, I think, you know, one of our central driving thoughts in this book is that this is an incredibly productive area for uh, cross-communication between philosophers and people working in the artificial intelligence tradition. So we think, you know, we have some things to say which are going to be helpful for them in the kinds of projects that they want to engage in, but we also think that philosophers need to be paying more attention to what the programmers and the people thinking about artificial intelligence are saying, because we think you can't just take what the philosophers have said about the externalist tradition and cookie cutter apply it to the artificial intelligence systems, Mm -hmm. right? Because they need to be um, removed from the particular anthropic context in which they were developed. And, and, And so we think it's not the best way to proceed to just grab onto one particular implementation of the externalist tradition and start trying to uh, force the various aspects of artificial intelligence output into that framework, because that framework is going to, from our point of view, be distorted by its anthropocentric origins in particular ways. Mm -hmm. And the particular kinds of distortion may vary from one externalist framework to another. And so the best, like the most optimistic way to make progress here is to try out a variety of these tools and think how in each one of these cases are we gonna go about confronting the question, in what way has this idea been too heavily trained on uh, the the specifics of the kinds of creatures that we are? So if you think about the the Kripkean system, which is one of the frameworks that we talk about, One of the ideas that Kripke has for the way in which our names come to be about the specific objects that they are is that there's a process in which there's a sort of initial dubbing. So there's some object that's maybe directly perceptually presented to us and we point to that object and we say, let's call that object Brutus. And there's thereby the beginning of a naming tradition. And then that naming tradition gets handed from one person to another. And that happens in a specific way. There's a use of the name by one person. There's a hearing of the name by the other person. That person then picks up that name and uses it themselves. And they have to use it in a a very specific way. right? So they have to intend to be continuing the same naming tradition. It's not going to work if someone introduces Brutus to me and says, this is Brutus, or tells me about Brutus, you know, I saw Brutus kill Caesar. And I think, oh, Brutus, that's a nice name. I think I'll use it for my cat. And then I go on and make further uses of the name. Well, those uses aren't going to be involved in the same chain of reference. So you have these ideas about dubbings and chains of reference where dubbings are centered around the idea of kind of direct presentation of objects, pointing at objects, intentions to name those objects, and chains of reference are based around intentions to participate in the same naming practice. And all of these things uh, threaten to be too specific to the sorts of creatures that we are. And that's why we want to ask these questions like, could you take these ideas and now ask, what would it be for there to be a dubbing incident for an artificial intelligence system? Because that can't be a matter of the AI system pointing to some object, or even the AI system being perceptually presented with that object. We need some more general picture about what a dubbing would be. And what would it be for the artificial intelligence system to be participating in the ongoing naming practice, that probably isn't a matter of it's having a certain kind of intention because a lot of these systems don't plausibly have anything like intentions. And so there are these now very specific questions that you're going to have to ask when you deal with the Kripkean framework about how are you going to abstract away from these human-specific ideas. but those questions are specific to the Kripkean way of putting things. When you turn to you know, a sort of Tyler Burge-style externalism, there are going to be a different collection of questions that you have to confront when you think about how to de-anthropocentrize that. And so we thought by looking at a variety of these traditions, we're going to get a better overall sense of the ways in which the externalist tools that we'd like to hand over to the, you know, the programming community as a useful tool have been overly influenced by the, the philosopher's specific engagements with with humans as the target.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's stick, let's with, stick the, with the, the Kripkean, Kripkean approach because that's the subject of your chapter, chapter five. five. How does it work for something like the predicate high risk when this AI is trying to say of Lucy that she is high, high risk? Um, what's the dubbing? What's the causal chain for an AI?
2: So one of the I guess characteristic features of the discussions in all these chapters is we we don't have a unique. We give you several options for how to mm-hmm. how to think about it, and we're not sure which one is is the correct one. And I'll get I'll get back to that in a little second. How how mm-hmm. to think about how to make that choice. Um, so in the Kripke model, it's quite simple. One of the, the weird things about Kripke's book it's a series of lectures naming a necessity is that the positive theory is presented, I think, in just a page or even a paragraph or something, Mm -hmm. where Kripke says in the case of of a human, there is an original dubbing. There's a passing along with some kind of intentions along the way. And then reference, the ability to talk about an object happens by virtue of being a part of this historical, Chain. Um, And so you can imagine someone introducing the term water or gold a long time ago, pointing out some substance, and it's being passed along throughout history, linguistic history, and you and I are now part of that chain. We denote those substances and we can predicate being wet or being water or being gold by virtue of being part of that historical linkage. And so that's the the externalist element is that it's historical. It's not something you can see inside the head. And so the first step towards generalization towards AI is to say, well, this looks great for AIs because it's part of a chain. It is part of a chain. We introduced this term a long time ago. If the model is correct for humans, then we do our denotation of those properties by being part of the chain. And then look what we did. We made this new thing. It's got got a neural net just like us. It's made from different stuff, but who cares? And then we have these people who are programmers who will, and this is where the tricky part comes in, make it part of the same chain as we are. Now, of course, the making part of the same chain as we are will... Be different in this particular case from what it was uh, for humans. So now we have to think through different options for how to think about being made part of a chain, and and this is where a bunch of we give the readers some options for how to think about it. But and and this this now we get very you know maybe too philosophical for for people who are not that into philosophy, but. One of the points we try to make throughout is that now we need a higher level of abstraction for thinking about how to do make these choices. In other words, how to think about the right way to do the abstraction. So I was describing the sort of baby picture of a Kripke applied to AI. Gotta make these choices about how the trend, how the programmer makes it part of the chain. How do we make those choices? They're not they shouldn't be just random. They shouldn't but, but, how are they made? And this is where we try to introduce a higher level before we were talking about meta semantics. but you can imagine an even higher level, the meta meta semantics, which tells you, guides you in thinking about meta semantics. And so we introduced some principles that we take from the philosopher Timothy Williamson for how to think about how to make choice points on the meta semantic level. In other words, how to implement this, cryptic picture, for example, for predicates, and so I think the the structurally interesting thing about the book is this even higher level that gives you guidance for how to think about the meta semantic level, which then may, gives you guidance for how to think about the particular choice points. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the stru- structure of how we mm-hmm. we do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and we we don't have time, I don't think, to get into all the the nitty gritty details, but let's. Let's do at least talk about the question of proper names, because in your example, you have Lucy, who is high risk. And you point out that some uh, AI like smart credit may uh, may not have been trained on data sets that even include some lexical item, you know, Lucy. Uh, So you take uh, an approach that you call the mental file theory to try and explain this. Uh, how it is that Smart Credit can still refer to Lucy, even though her name is nowhere in in its its neural network? Uh, so, what's the mental file uh, situation or, or theory uh, in human beings, and then how do you abstract to get this to work for AI?
1: Good. So, here's the basic mental file picture. the The mental file theorist thinks that as you encounter objects in the world you as we're metaphorically open up a mental file and exactly what this amounts to there are going to be different ways of understanding this but the basic idea is there's some some kind of standing cognitive structure in which you collect a bunch of information that you take to be about a single person right so You encounter someone, you see something about them, they're wearing a red shirt, they're talking loudly, and you sort of write down a bunch of properties in your head. There is someone, they're wearing a red shirt, they're talking loudly, and so on. Uh, Later, you encounter an individual again, and you take them to be the same person that you encountered before. And so new information that you get about them, you, you stick in the same file, you sort of cluster all that information together. And now we can now ask, about this mental file, well, who is it a file about? And this is the kind of question that's gonna get especially pressing when uh, you get confused. So, uh, for example, there's a pair of identical twins, and sometimes you're encountering one of them, and sometimes you're encountering another, but you fail to realize this, so you just start putting all of the information into the same file on the assumption that there's a single person that all this information is about. Now, if this confusion gets bad enough, you might end up wanting to say, this file doesn't successfully pick out anyone. But if there's just a little bit of confusion, if, you know, occasionally you input information from the wrong person into a file, you might still want to hold on to the thought that that this file is successfully picking someone out. Mm -hmm. But now we need to know... uh, who is it picking out, and why is it picking out that person? And one of the pictures that motivates the mental files framework is that the file is about the person that would be knowledge maximizing. Mm-hmm. So what it is that makes your file a file about Brutus rather than about someone else is that by taking this to be a file about Brutus so that your beliefs involving that file, we interpret as Brutus beliefs. By taking it in that way, we're gonna maximize the amount of stuff that you know. We'll be able to say now, oh, this person does know that Brutus killed Caesar and you know that uh, Brutus played certain roles in Roman history, you know, had certain practices and so on. Whereas if we took the file to be about someone else, We might, as it were, coincidentally get some of the the things right, but you wouldn't count as knowing these things because you didn't have the right kind of evidence, you didn't have the right kind of epistemic relations. So the thought is, to figure out who your mental files are about, you need to think about how your mental life is, is epistemically connected to your environment, which objects you're actually getting evidence about and are in a position to know about.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm and so for ai then how how does it have some kind of uh epistemically rewarding relationship as as you put it to to the outside world how how do you cash this out for ai
2: well so this gets a little bit back to the issues we were talking about earlier the the guiding meta meta semantics and the principle that I was just mentioning that we took it from Timothy Williamson, but we're—I didn't say what it was. But so the, the basic principle is something that's knowledge-maximizing for us. Mm-hmm. So we're going—we're thinking that we've created these systems. Uh, the content attributions are made by us, and we've created them in order to help us improve our understanding of the world. Like who has cancer, who has creditworthiness who should be in prison. So we want this to be knowledge that helps us. So uh, the choice points, the thing that should should weigh evidence or sources of evidence, as, as the mental file framework talks about, it should be done in such a way that it maximizes the potential for human interpreters' knowledge. Now, that's you could see that's quite a bias. You, you could do it the other way around and think, well not really it should be the it should be the system itself that gets the knowledge the most out mm-hmm. of it we're so here we're choosing to sort of see them as tools for humans and then that choice guides us in talking about how to weigh the relevant kinds of evidential sources for the system now just in detail how to do that but i don't i don't think we even try to give a general principle for mm-hmm. for how to do it uh, so, so the, the so this is the point where you know clearly more more detail is needed, but the general principle is pick a way of weighing sources of information. Gareth Evans talked about the dominant source of information. But develop a notion of dominance that is such that by using it, it maximizes the knowledge we get uh, from the systems. Mm-hmm. And so we so. So if you're looking for very detailed stories about how to do particular systems and their interpretation, you don't get obviously very much from this book. What you get are these general frameworks for how to do it in a particular case. And then the details will be obviously incredibly complicated for each specific instance.
0: Right. And, and you su- you suggested that in discussion about the last chapter as well, that you have these choice points too that you've you've introduced and you're, you're really, you're focusing on getting a framework for the readers to be able to, to think about these in particular um, AI sort of context. Uh, in the time that we have left, let's look at how we put things together. I mean, we've talked about Lucy, we've talked about being high risk, but we don't yet have anything propositional. We need to predicate of Lucy that she's high risk. Um, What is predication? I mean, this is a huge topic. Uh, In your book, you're focusing in particular on teleosemantics. So what's teleosemantics? And how is this going to help us put together this, this relationship between Lucy and the property of being high risk?
1: but so tele-semantics is another tool in the kind of general externalist toolbox that philosophy has been considered and the thought here is that sometimes to be able to figure out what something is representing you need to figure out what the function of that object is and some notions of function just look like they're they're human imposed functions so you know the the speedometer on your car represents how fast the car is traveling. It represents that because that's the function of the speedometer. And the reason that's the function of the speedometer is because we designed it to do that and we intended it to do that. But some notions of function may be available without kind of humanly imposed function. And this is something that you'll see in a biological context most naturally. So you might think, there's a good sense in which the function of the heart is to pump blood, not just because we regard it as a blood pumping tool, but because that's how it's been evolutionarily designed and feedback reinforced to function. And so, for example, in the case of perception, you might think that your perceptual states are representing the environment around you. They're giving you information about the environment because that's the function of the perceptual system is to, to represent how the environment is going. And so the basic telio functional idea is one of the sources of meaning can be the, the proper function of objects. So now we're thinking this may be a profitable idea to... Considering how it is that an artificial intelligence system manages not just to represent specific objects and specific features, but actually to, as it were, assert and deliver us information that attributes a specific feature to a specific object. So we think, you know, why is it when smart credit says Lucy is high risk, we should not just think, this is a, a system that's um, represented Lucy and represented a property, but actually specifically said Lucy has that property rather than, for example, Lucy doesn't have that property or Lucy might have that property. Right? It's important that we know how it's putting these pieces together. And so now the thought is, well, to answer that question, we need to, or one of profitable approaches to think about what the the function of the outputs of the AI system are. Right? And we think one of the reasons this is a particularly interesting case is these AI systems have features both of kind of human-imposed functionality. So in some ways, they're like the speedometer that represents what it does because we intended that it represent in that way and we designed it to represent in that way. But also some aspects of the kind of natural and say, you know, evolutionarily and natural selection developed representational systems. So to some extent, the system has the function it does because it's engaged in a kind of feedback mechanism that's allowed it to perpetuate and develop its own internal structure in response to its environment in very much the way that, that we did when we were evolving, the kind, evolving in the kind of environments that we did. So mm-hmm. we think it's a really interesting test case for uh, trying to think how we should take this uh, notion of function and apply it to something that sort of spans the uh, artificial versus natural divide in a way that hopefully will produce some, some interesting things theoretical insights into how to think about these things. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about in in the book. Of course, you go into more detail in each of the chapters than we've been able to to cover in this time. And you do have a concluding chapter that that develops some, um, you say, some sort of scattered thoughts uh, about the extended mind theory and um, representation and some, some various things. But I think given um, given the time, let me just uh, close with asking if there's anything else that we haven't covered that you think is important in appreciating uh, your book. Conclude the last chapter if you want, or or anything that we haven't talked about so far.
2: Well, I, I think we've covered a lot of of the core uh, ideas in the book. I think if I were to, maybe this is more re-emphasizing than, than adding something, it's that I given the way we've written the book where it's not a particular theory that's being pushed about um, particular cases, Mm -hmm. and given the very high level of, of abstraction, and to some extent it's a sort of programmatic book trying to tell people or encourage people in our field to start thinking about various ways where they should take their favorite theories and try to do the sort of thing that that we're doing. So it's it's a little bit of a call to arms, rather than pushing a particular theory. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of philosophy books and papers that we write there are books and papers saying, you know, we've found the truth about this, and here's the argument for why it's uh, true. And now come and try to refute us. This book really doesn't quite have that structure. It says here are some incredibly challenging questions. And here are some ways, and we don't even know which one is the right one yet. We're just giving you some options. And but anyway, i we're giving you a way of thinking about it. But we really hope to convince you that these issues are worth thinking about. And that if you spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of meaning, semantics, and pragmatics, and the issues that many philosophers have been thinking about, then you know this is a great place for you both to improve your own theory to, and to apply it to a case. It's mm-hmm. super important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll note we'll we'll put up a link on the on the podcast blog of of course, but this is an open access book, so the call to arms is very much open to 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 everyone. Uh, we'll put up a link to the book. Let Let me uh, conclude by asking, what are the two of you working on now, uh, either together or separately? I know you co author a lot. What are your what's occupying you right now?
2: Actually, I'm going to jump in here, even though we're alternating. I'm hoping that by the end of this week Josh will finish a new paper on these very topics. He promised me that he would do it. I'm (laughs) expecting it. And that's a very different way of thinking about it from what we've been talking about. It's it's a way of saying we're saying, well, you know, maybe you just cannot de-anthropomorphize and include the AI. Maybe it's completely Mm. alien. Mm. And what do we do if if AIs have a completely alien metasemantics and they maybe even have alien contents and so the paper is or joint papers, that that one paper is exploring that option which is going a different direction but following I think in the same pattern that I was just describing here are different ways of thinking about it the book really sort of holds out hope that they're doing the same kind of thing as us humans in some abstract sense But, but maybe it isn't like that at all maybe they're just completely different from us then we still have to try to figure out how to engage with them and, and how communication is possible under those circumstances. So that's one, one thing we're working on now.
0: Josh, anything, anything to add? Would that be I, closing. No, line?
2: so I'll be busy trying
1: to uh, make good on that promissory note that Herman <laughs> just advanced. All
0: right. Well, thank you both for your time. Um, and as I said, I'll put up a link to the book on the podcast uh, a blog, and I appreciate your time. Good to talk to you both.
2: Thanks so much. Thank you for having us.